All right, so we're going we're gonna to dive into the Gospel of John this morning. Now, if you've been with us, we've been in this thing called the Upper Room Discourse. So this is John 13 through 17. We're at the latter half of chapter 16. And we're going to review a couple things this morning. Um, but I thought I might do just a quick doodle review as a way to enter in. All right, so we start at this dinner. Uh, Jesus, a few times now, he's done like, you know, emoji hand wave goodbye. He's like, I'm leaving. Now, as a result, what you have is you have the disciples, right? And they're, you know, their sad face emoji, right? They, Jesus says to them a number of times, he's like, do not let your hearts be troubled, right? So Jesus is saying goodbye. He's doing sad face emoji, the Holy Spirit. A couple words to try and comfort them. He says, hey, don't worry. You know, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. This is meant to be a dove. I'm not a great artist, but there we go. Smiling dove. And um, the dove is going to come. The Spirit's going to come. He's going to comfort you. He's going to teach you. He's going to guide you. Right? So he says that. And then he also says, hey, guess what? I'm also going to prepare a place for you. Right? He says that in chapter 13. Right? He's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he also says, hey, the Father and I, in the midst of this transition, we are actually going to make a home in you. Right? So he's trying to comfort them. And this is important because he also talks about how right, there's an angry face emoji. The world is going to hate you. There are going to be moments of trial and tribulation in this world, right? As I say goodbye, your hearts are going to be troubled, and there's going to be significant conflict. These are all themes that he is going to highlight, or he has highlighted, uh, and we're going to touch on a little bit today. Those are the things they know. What they don't know is that uh, within the next 24 hours, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to die on a cross. He says, I'm going to take off, but they don't know that that taking off is the way of the cross that he's actually going to die on a Roman cross. He's going to be crucified, executed, and tortured. And they certainly, he is going to be raised that within 48 hours or 72 hours after that, right, he is going to be raised from the grave. He says, in a little while, you know, I'm going to take off. You're going to be troubled. Your hearts are going to be troubled because Jesus is going to die on a cross. Then he's going to raise from the grave. He's going to have 40 days with them. He's going to then ascend to the Father. He's going to leave again. But he's going to send the Spirit to comfort them. Right? He's going to build a home for them in the future and in the present. He's going to be with them through the Spirit because life is not always going to be easy. There's going to be trial and tribulation. That's the quick doodle summary of the last two chapters, three chapters. Now in our text today, one of the things that happens, this is John 16, 16 through 33. One of the things that happens is, uh, like in almost all of John, actually greater clarity comes through lack of understanding. It's this fascinating thing in the Gospel of John. Almost every time Jesus has an extended discourse, it's because someone doesn't get what he's saying. Whether it's the disciples or someone outside, they're just like, what are you saying? And then he says, let me explain more. Right? And then there's this back and forth dialogue that unfolds. This is how the dialogue unfolds uh, in Jesus' final words in the upper room discourse to the disciples. Because right after this, in chapter 17, he's going to spend the whole chapter praying. This is his final words, right? He says this, 16 through 18. A little while, rather, what is this? No longer, and again, a little while you will see me. 
So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Right? So Jesus says, a little while. They know the upper line. What they don't know is that Jesus is going to be crucified and raised from the dead. And in a little while, really in the span of three or four days, they're going to see him resurrected in a resurrection body. They just don't know this. So they're confused. Right? And then this shapes what happens next. Right? Jesus, in the midst of, okay, you know, you don't get it. Then he explains. This is 19 through 28. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. In that day you will, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. For now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now a lot of these themes have come up as we've gone through this Upper Room Discourse. One of the significant contributions in this moment is this sort of childbirth analogy, uh, which if you're a mom and you've had a child, you get if you're a dad and you've been in the room and you've watched this, you also get at least one step removed. (laughs) What Jesus says here is really interesting, though, if you think about it. He doesn't give them rose-colored glasses and it's like, hey, you know what? It's going to be fine. He doesn't say that. He says, actually, there's going to be pain and then there will be joy. He doesn't pretend that the next little bit is going to be easy. Now, back in the life isn't easy. He's like, you know what? You're going to suffer. Now, back in the first century, it's not like today where women giving birth more often than not are in some wing of the hospital that only a select few can enter, right? So there's like childbirth is usually put somewhere where most of us don't get to see it or hear it unless you are having a child or your spouses. In the first century, all births were home births. There was no drugs and there was no epidurals, right? Birth takes place in a communal environment. So every one of these guys grew up in a village and they heard childbirth happening around them. They are not women, but I think they get the analogy, right? I did not have a child, but I watched my wife have a child and I know that did not look pleasant. But I also got to watch her joy, right? As her child is handed to her, 
She has gone through this ordeal and then you see this new life that she has brought into and welcomed into the world and her joy is obvious. I think the disciples get this. And Jesus is saying to them, hey, this is going to be your experience. There is going to be pain and then there is going to be joy. Right? They, Jesus knows these disciples are going to abandon him. They are going to leave him alone. Right? They will see him crucified, tortured, hung upon a cross, ashamed. And then on Saturday, they will have no hope in the world. Right? They are not thinking in the back of their heads, you know, maybe he'll get resurrected. Like, fingers crossed, no one is doing that. Their hope has been extinguished on that Saturday. And then God brings life from no life. God brings hope from no hope. Right? Like a birth, God brings new life into the world. It's also true that when you have a baby, right, it's not like that's the end of the story. Now new life is in the world and life is not always easy. And Jesus is saying, hey, you might still experience pain. And when you do, when life is not easy, when angry face emoji is rocking it in the world, hey, guess what? Ask and I'll hear your prayers. And guess what? It's not just so you can survive. He says, I want you to have full joy. Did you pick up that in verse 24? He wants us to have full joy. And guess what? I'm not going to have to convince the Father he wants you to experience. The Father loves you. The Father loves you and he wants you to experience joy, even if life isn't easy. Now, at the end of verse 28, it seems like the disciples get it. They're like, yes! Right? And Jesus says to them in verse 29, Oh, now you're, you know, they say to him, Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, if you're like me, you're like, I don't know what Jesus said right there that like made it feel plain because that felt like a figure of speech, but be that as it may. You know, he's already said something like this five times, but for some reason, this clicks for them. The childbirth analogy is like the code breaker. They get it. And then Jesus says in verse 31 to 33, the last lines he will say to them before they leave and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And these are the last things he will say to them. Verse 17, or chapter 17 is a prayer, and this is what he says, his final words to them before uh, they leave the upper room. Jesus answered them, Do you believe now? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered with me each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now there's three things going on here. Now if you are going to give your parting words, you might not start with, hey, guess what? In a moment, I'm glad you believe, you know, I'm really excited. Just know that in a moment you're going to abandon me. That's how Jesus starts his final words to them. Guess what? You're going to scatter and leave me alone. 
And then he says to them, but guess what? I, I won't be alone. The Father will be with me. And then he does this interesting transition. He goes from, you're going to scatter to, and guess what? I'm saying these things so that you might have peace. Like, what? Peace is not my immediate response to, hey, guess what? You're going to abandon me. Why? So I thought about that. Like, why does he say, I've said this so that you can have peace? And I think part of it is, when this happens, when you scatter, just know, I didn't go into this blindly. I knew what was going to happen, and guess what? I wasn't depending on your faith to make this okay. I am going to embrace the Father's will for me, which is the way of the cross, and guess what? You can have peace even though you scatter me because the Father is the most. And then he says, maybe the most profound statement of this whole discourse. He says this, in the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the final thing he says to them in the upper room discourse. I have overcome the world. Take heart can be translated a few ways. He's like, be courageous is one. Be brave. Be of good cheer if you're sort of a British sentiment. Uh, you know, be of good cheer. Anyway, I'm terrible at British accents. Um, you have this idea of, hey, be of good cheer. The victory is won. Be brave. Be courageous. Yes, there will be angry face emoji wherever you go. But I have overcome the world. Now, this word is really important. I actually think you're kind of familiar with it already. Um, I'm just going to project something and tell me if you've ever heard of this. Have you ever heard of that company? That's Nike. That's the Greek word for overcome in the New Testament. Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? I have Nike'd the world. To Nike. Serious. To overcome is to Nike. Jesus is saying, I have overcome the world. And the thing about Greek is they have these different tenses that we're not totally familiar with. One is called the perfect tense. The perfect tense is this. There is a completed past action that has ongoing future consequence. Does that make sense? Past action completed that sort of is projected forward into the future. So what Jesus is actually saying is, I have forever overcome the world. That the victory I accomplish, what they don't know, but we know through the cross and resurrection, leads to a forever victory. I have overcome the world. Now one thing that's really important here is, it's sort of hard to understand if you think just in abstract in terms of what does it mean to overcome? Like who is being overcome? Who is the enemy in this narrative? So you've overcome, great, but Tell me a little bit about this. What is the thing overcome? And now to understand this, we have to take a little bit of a detour. This detour is to enter into the overall arc of the scriptures, the story in which Jesus overcomes. This is how the story begins. God creates the world, and he creates it for good. So he creates humanity, and this was good, and this all things, and it's created for good. If you go through Genesis 1, it's like, oh, and this was good, and this was good, and then the whole thing together, tov ma'od, is the phrase in Hebrew. It's very good. It's all created good. God wants human beings to flourish. But this is the problem. 
when you get to Genesis 2 and then 3, right, what you see is that humanity has been damaged by evil. And what you see in Genesis 3, right, is that human beings, they kind of go their own way. And this actually comes from them, but has consequences that don't just stop in them. What we'll see is actually then it infects all of creation. So human action actually affects all of creation. And not only does it affect all of creation, but then it sort of zigzags back and affects human beings and creates division in the world. So what you see and what we see in the world is sin or evil like a virus that spreads. And this is why it's so hard. You can't just say like, we're going to fix this problem because that problem is connected to this problem is connected to that problem. It's like this virus or parasite that spreads. And now it's in all things. And it's in this part of the story that Jesus accomplishes the victory. Because this is when Jesus enters the world. What happens? The word rescue, right? This is John 1. If you go back to how we started, right? What happens? The word becomes flesh. He moves into the neighborhood. God takes on human flesh to address the parasitic, the virus of sin and evil in the world. He moves into the neighborhood. And not only that, but he dies on the cross and he is raised from the grave to address the parasitic evil in sin in the world that affects creation. It affects our relationship with one another and it affects our relationship with God. And Jesus comes in and dies on the cross. He is raised by the power of God, which then leads to new life in us. Right? As we believe and trust in him, that life that he created at the beginning that we could inhabit comes into us. As we let go and trust in him, we experience the life-giving presence of God. This is the beginning of the victory. Jesus dies and is resurrected, and that is the victory, which leads to the final victory. But it begins with us. We are transformed from the inside out. And then guess what? We are sent to heal. We are sent to be the faithful presence of God in the world. So into this sinful world, we become living billboards of the God is at work in the world. This is the in-between that we live in right now. God is at work in us. He's transforming us from the inside out that we could be mirror the new creation that is coming. But one day, Jesus says, right, I'm preparing a place for you and I'll come back and get you, right? God is going to come back and restore all things. He's going to make all things new. And we talk about the kingdom of God coming to earth, Revelation 22. What does God say? I see a new heaven and a new earth coming. And what does Jesus say? Hey, I am coming to make all things new. And eventually what we see is that all things are made new. Sin, evil, destruction, injustice are eradicated from earth. This is what we talk about when the kingdom of God is fully realized. God comes and takes away sin, injustice, wrong, and evil. Right? That is the, the final victory. But what we see is actually the victory happens at the cross and is realized when God comes to restore all things and make all things new. So when Jesus says, I have overcome the world, I have Nike'd the world, what he's saying is I have overcome the sin, the evil, the injustice, the wrong that has infected all of creation like a virus. But we won't see the full realization of that 
until God comes and makes all things new. So that's kind of the story. The question, though, Jesus has a victory, or maybe the what he defeats. The question, though, also is, how does he do it? That's the story of what is defeated, but how? What we have to see and recognize, and super important, is Jesus overcomes through hardship. Jesus overcomes through the cross. Remember, there's this moment right after this, Jesus will pray, he'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, God, I don't really want to do this. Not my will, but yours be done. He trusts in God. He lets go. And in that moment of letting go, he allows the Father to direct him. He picks up his cross, and he walks the way of Calvary. He is crucified. Then what happens? God, the Father, brings life to his dead body. This is the how of the victory. The what is sin, evil, wrong, is defeated. The how, it is through submission to the Father, letting go into the Father's arms. And this becomes crazy important now as the disciples are going to go into angry face emoji world. How do they run in the wake of Jesus' victory? If you go through the New Testament, what they say consistently is that we get Jesus' victory as we believe, trust, as Jesus trusts. But believe is not one plus one equals two. Believe is trust. So as we trust, as Jesus trusts the Father, we get to ride in the wake of Jesus' victory. We get to experience the defeat of sin and evil at work in us as we submit to the Father's leading. Now, I think we kind of get this delayed thing, right? This is World War II. Like, if you're a World War II buff, right, this is, there's a difference between D-Day, right, when the battle, when we really, the battle is really won, but V-E Day takes place about a year later, Victory in Europe Day. And there's this same delay at work in the now and not yet of the victory. The battle's won, We're waiting for Jesus to return to make all things new. Now the question is, as this text sort of lands in this context, so how does this relate to our everyday life? It's like, wait, wait, I can kind of hold the pieces together, but how does this actually make sense today? I think there are a few things. One, I would say this. Life is not always easy. I think we know this in our bones Life is not always easy. And Jesus doesn't shy away from that, does he? Like one of the things he talks in the upper room discourse is, hey man, this is going to be hard. And there are going to be times when you feel alone. There's going to be times when you feel discouraged. And like the first century, we are in a cultural environment that doesn't necessarily encourage us to hope and trust and love Jesus. And we have a couple choices, just as they did, right? We can sort of go along with the cultural tide, or we can try and swim against that current and cling to Jesus in faith, in hope, trusting him. Now, one of the things that Jesus does, right? So this is why it's important to understand the how, not just the what of what Jesus overcomes. Because the way we navigate life not being easy is not by trying harder. It's like, man, my life is just not working. I just got to try harder. 
Jesus provides the model if we want to walk in the victory of God, which is connected to the joy that Jesus says. Verse 24, you want to experience full joy? Jesus says he wants to give us peace. How do we experience it? We need to be people who walk the way of Jesus, which means letting go and trusting. When life isn't easy, the model Jesus provides is not try harder. Buy another five self-help books so into the Father's rocket. It's to let go into the Spirit's invitation, to let go into the Father's arms, just as Jesus does. Not my will, but your be done. And as we do that, we walk in the victory of God, which brings us joy and peace to navigate the difficult moments. One of the things we do often in our cultural moment is we focus so much on why. Something hard goes on in your life. You know, and it's easy. I feel this. Like, it's easy to be like, God, Why? 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 It is so easy to inhabit the why. If you look at the New Testament, though, what you see is the New Testament is actually not primarily concerned about why. There's a basic presumption in the New Testament that life is going to be hard. The New Testament constantly pushes us to how. It's not why is their problem. We've already looked at that. Sin is like a virus Evil is like a virus that infects everything. Of course, life isn't going to be easy. The question is not why. The question is how. How do we then navigate a world that is infected with the virus of sin, with evil, injustice, and wrong? And Jesus says the way we do that is we let go and we trust. Now, what does that mean super practically? Two things I would encourage you to do. If you come in this morning during worship, after this message, during worship, don't sit there, you know, why God, why? I can feel this like toddler instinct in me sometimes when life is hard, like why, 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 why? Said, go to God in as much humility as you can muster in that place of pain and say, God, help me to cling to your presence in the midst of the difficulties in life. God, teach me how to do that. I think another thing to just lean into when life gets hard is focus on, God, what are you doing in me as I endure this process? God is trying to remake us from the inside out. I have this pastor friend. uh, We were going through a tough time, and he said this, don't waste a trial. Because those are often the times when God works on us at the most profound and core level. Life is not easy. The question is, how do we cling to him in the midst of it? Second thing is this, right? Jesus overcomes. Now, I'm pretty confident if you're at all like me, you walk into this room and you don't feel like, you know what, I am like awesome at following Jesus. I mean, maybe you do. You should be up here, right? Most of us come in to a gathering like this with some level of guilt, some level of shame, some level of like, man, I feel like I should be better at this. I've been doing it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50, 60 years. Like, shouldn't I be better at this? And the message of Jesus overcoming is that Jesus overcomes whether you rock it or not. 
we are invited in this moment this morning to bring that guilt, that shame, that performance, perfectionism, and just lay it at the cross and say, Jesus, I walk in your victory. That I don't have to be the hero of my faith life because you already are. Or maybe you come in this morning and you're despairing at the world. You know, you look at the latest news feed, you look at your Twitter account, whatever it is, and you're just like, man, what is going on with our world? It's crazy. It's, you know, in a tailspin and it's not going to recover. And it's easy in that moment to get despairing. And Jesus is saying, hey, my victory is not just a personal thing, like now you get to have hope, but there is a hope in, in the parasitic world. That even if we can see, all we see is sin and the parasitic destruction of evil in the world, that one day Jesus will come and he will make all things new. And that we can hold on to that as an anchor of hope that God has not abandoned us as individuals or as a world. What does this mean practically? I think we need to be super creative I think we need to be the kind of people that when we feel guilt, when we feel shame, the instinct is to hide. The instinct is withdraw. And I actually think that is the best moment to move in. Use your guilt, your shame, your sense of imperfection and unworthiness actually to come into the presence of God and be like, I don't need to be perfect. Yours is the victory using our emotions that often lead us to hiding to bring us into the victory of God. Next time that happens, rather than running, just say, oh, isn't it awesome that I follow a God that has already won the victory? And I can just put my shame at the foot as his feet and just say, oh, God, thank you. And the next time you're reading your newsfeed and you're like despairing, even though it looks like, you know what? You're going to make all things new. Even though it looks like this battle is far from over, Jesus says he has overcome the world. The end of Revelation is one of the last prayers of the Bible. What you hear is this Aramaic prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And that we can actually use our despair as a springboard to prayer to say, God, I am despairing. Everything I see around me is falling apart, but I know you are coming, and you're going to make all things new so that I can have hope. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It is not about us fixing the world. God will do that. We are called to submit our lives to him, to trust him, to let go, and through that process, he makes us new that we can be living billboards of his faithfulness in the midst of a broken and evil world, and that God will come and make all things new. That is not your job, that is not mine, that is God's. I want to invite the worship team up. So we're going to lean into his presence now. And I just want to invite you, whatever you bring to the table this morning. Maybe you bring, you know, as a sleepy parent, you're just like, I'm just trying to focus here, you know. Maybe you bring discouragement, maybe you bring joy, I, I'm not sure. That God is this song. It's about the resurrecting presence of God. That God is the one who wants to come in and breathe new life in us. It's about Jesus being the victory that we hope for.
whether you want to stand or sit, I invite you to make this song a prayer. Not simply words you say this morning, but a prayer from the depth of your being and the brokenness of our world that Jesus brings hope and life into your present moment, whether it is good or bad or in between. Jesus, come. You say to us that you have overcome the world. Give us that hope now. Give us that peace you promised. Give us that full joy. Because life is not easy, God, and we need some help. Come into those broken places. Come into those unhealed places. Come into our places of despair. God, we want to walk with the confidence that you have conquered evil and sin and injustice. God, we want to be transformed for the ways in which sin just sort of divides our heart, that we are mixed bags, that we are people that are not perfect. And we say, God, yours is the victory. Come, be with us. Come, Trinitarian God. Be with us. Remake us, make us new.